Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode of Bridges to the Future. On these pods, I try to find a course between two other styles of interview. I avoid being too matey and flippant as I, I find that's a bit self-indulgent, a bit tedious. But also, I'm not adversarial. It seems rude, unlikely to generate insight. But a new book by the writer and cultural commentator Ian Leslie has made me question my approach. Maybe a bit more conflict might be a good thing. But if so, how do I generate more light than heat? Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. Ian, welcome to Bridges to the Future. Hello, Matthew. Thank you. Very good to be here. So there's a small chance, Ian, I should share this with you, that you might be implicated in my untimely death. Let me explain. I've been reading your book on my iPad. Now, I dropped my iPad about a year ago, and so it smashed in the corner. So I put sellotape over the corner where all the shattered fragments of glass are. But we have the inevitable lockdown puppy who, like all puppies, eats anything inappropriate and must have in the night eaten the sellotape off the corner of the iPad. So I picked up the iPad this morning to read the final chapter of your book and got a sliver of glass into my finger. Now, my wife says I should go to A&E because we're not sure if it's still there or not, whereas I think I can't possibly go and spend four hours in A&E for a bit of glass, which may not even be there. But it's possible that I will get blood poisoning and die in the next few hours, in which case you will be, I'm afraid, and slightly responsible. Well, if I'm reading this right, you will also have died without reading the last chapter of my book. No, I read the last chapter, even though there was oh, blood. Well, even, though there, even though there was blood pouring down my arm, you know, <laughs> Through the tears and the screams, I did read the final chapter. So anyway, I just want you to know, for posterity's sake, that you have a small role in my demise if my wife's alarmism proves to be correct and my unwillingness to spend four hours in King's shows to be a mistake. Now, full disclosure to our listeners, Ian and I worked together on the kind of predecessor podcast to Bridges, which was called Polarized. That was great fun, and I miss us doing it. But the fact that you wanted to do that program with me on polarization indicates in that this interest you've got in conflict division it goes back quite a long way yes so the book is only partly about politics and and the public sphere but that is actually kind of why i started thinking about it like you and like a lot of people i was from you know around 2016 but for several years i've been kind of looking at the way that we conduct arguments and discourse on public matters on social media, but also, you know, everywhere really. And just thinking, wow, there's a lot of terrible arguments out there, <laughs> you know, really heated, toxic debates that actually shed no light whatsoever and just end up with everybody even more entrenched in their positions. And so, yeah, I was just, I just started wondering about that and thinking, what's the real problem here? What's the, why is this happening? Is it just to do with social media or are there deeper social and historical issues here? And yeah, I mean, to cut a long story short, I came to the conclusion that, that, that one of the problems here is that there's more disagreement now. There's more kind of space for disagreement than ever in our world. But we're totally unprepared for it because nobody's really kind of thought about or trained us in how to disagree well. So it's kind of taken us by surprise. 
Yeah, and I thought that was one of the several fascinating points in the book. And by the way, the book's not that long. I mean, or, or it certainly didn't feel long reading it. It, no, was, no. it really rolled along. I don't want people to feel intimidated by this. It's a great book, and I read it in a few days and loved it. But I'm going to push you a bit further. In There's a couple of hints about this. You talk about, you know, I think you do a couple of times talk about arguments with your wife or whatever. What about you and conflict, though? To write a book about conflict how were you in the playground? How are you at home before you wrote this book and before you developed all these useful tips? I'm sure you're absolutely perfect at it now. But before that, how were you with conflict? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely not perfect at it. And part of the reason that I wanted to write it in the end was that I'm pretty conflict averse. I don't like it. I've never really been the person who gets into big rows and arguments in person or on social media. I find it stressful. I find it really unpleasant and I will find ways to avoid it. And I think in that sense, I'm probably like most people, right? There are some people who really enjoy a fight, right? Hopefully not physical, although some people do enjoy physical fights, but some people just really love argument. You know, that kind of Christopher Hitchens style of really wanting to get into it. And I think most of us just think most of the time, well, there's no point. It's not much fun. Like, I'm going to avoid it. And yeah, just going back to what I was saying, having started out thinking that the problem here is all these horrible, toxic arguments that we can see in front of our eyes. I actually came around to the view that, well, no, the real problem is avoidance. And because we see so many terrible arguments played out in public now, that's just increased our sense that conflict and disagreement is something to shy away from. And actually, I think that means that we lose out because there are immense benefits of disagreement and conflict. And when you avoid it, no good comes of that. Yeah, and that was certainly one of the things I took out of the book, which is I think, you know, people like you and me, Ian, and I won't now say this, I haven't read your book, but we kind of said, oh, well, I, I don't like conflict. And we kind of say it slyly. What we're really saying is I'm not the kind of person who's going to roll around in the mud. I'm beyond that. And actually, that is on the one hand an excuse we make for the fact that we haven't bothered to master the arts of constructive conflict. But it also, it doesn't mean, just because we don't like conflict, it doesn't mean we don't want our own way. In fact, I remember somebody many years ago saying to me in a heated argument, and I said, I don't like conflict. And she said, well, no, why don't you just carry on sticking to manipulation? So just because we don't like conflict doesn't mean that we're not working a way to get what we want. It's just, a, you know, we're not willing to put it on the table and be explicit about the fact that there might be a difference here. I think that's absolutely right and really well put, because what, you know, in inverted commas, people like you and me do often is we say things like, well, you know, why can't we just be reasonable here when just discuss things coolly? Let's just kind of take the emotion out of this. And what we end up doing is really kind of performing just a more subtle form of control and domination. And we kind of avoid attaching our whole selves to the position we're taking. And, you know, that gets people's backs up because they can tell what's going on. We're just trying to get our way using our kind of education and our relatively kind of like articulate, you know, in inverted commas, approach to disagreement to kind of evade responsibility for the position that we're taking. So, yeah, I wanted to write a book that really looked and welcomed the kind of emotional side of disagreement and conflict. I don't want to take the emotion out of it and say, let's all be reasonable. I think, yeah, I think that's got problems. So that's another point you make in the book, which is that if only we'd listened to David Hume more and René Descartes slightly less, because Hume absolutely understood that emotion is the master of reason and that taking emotion out of things is, is impossible. Whereas Descartes, of course, 
you know, he's the one who got this whole thing going about the fact that educated people, sophisticated people are able to overcome their emotions and that reason really is the thing that distinguishes us and and reason should be the thing that guides us. And part of your story is, look, own your own emotions. Don't imagine that you can take emotion out of it. And also don't try to deal with situations where people do feel emotion by saying, well, let's get rid of that because it's only through reason that we can resolve it. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a kind of dishonesty to it. And certainly there can be. Look, if this is something you care about and you think is important, you should feel emotional about it. And actually, yeah, emotion can make you better at thinking, as you say. Emotion is a great motivator. When I'm writing something, the writing is going to be better if I have a real emotional state in the case I'm making. Emotion kind of drives your brain into a higher gear. Now, what people are worried about is, you know, what if people get really over-emotional and just kind of stops them thinking and that clouds their rationality? Yeah, that's also a problem. But the answer is not to just take emotion out. That's not going to make the the disagreement better or it's not going to make anybody smarter either. And this takes me to one of the really important points of the book, which is this kind of U-curve notion which you offer us, which is that in teams, in organisations, obviously enormous out-of-control continuous conflict is not great. You're not going to get a great deal done. In fact, things are just going to collapse and be miserable. But you want to argue just as much that a kind of false consensus, a fear of conflict, a suppression of conflict, a viewing of any kind of disagreement as being a problem, that is also really bad for creativity. It's bad for diversity of thought. It makes it less likely that you're going to spot that you might be making mistakes. So you're encouraging us to to move along that U-curve and recognise that properly managed conflict with people using the tools that are available to make that conflict work, that is actually the best place to be. We shouldn't be aspiring to a world where we all agree with each other. Exactly. So we see bad conflict, bad arguments happen, right? Whether we're seeing that on social media or just, you know, forget about that for a minute, just at home or at work, you know, you see some sort of horrible argument take place that doesn't go anywhere and you think, Ah, well, conflict is bad. Let's not do that again. Let's avoid it. And we become kind of, you know, very wary of it. It's just a mistake, right? What it means is, you know, too much conflict is bad or kind of badly handled conflict is bad. But no conflict is actually terrible (laughs) because all those differences of opinion you have just kind of go beneath the surface and express themselves in, in more subtle kind of passive ways. And I think the diversity question is really interesting here because there's a lot of emphasis now, rightly, on putting together more diverse teams. And that's right from a kind of social justice perspective. But it also, as people have pointed out, has immense benefits in terms of the thinking that gets done. Because when you have cognitive diversity around the table, you have lots of people with different experiences, different opinions, different sort of knowledge sets around the table. You bring all that together and you can create something much greater than the sum of the parts. But what happens if you have this amazingly diverse set of people around the table and they all just nod along with each other, you know, and, and they will kind of passively agree to go along with whatever the dominant view, you know, starts off, you know, in, in the discussion. You're not unlocking the benefits of that diversity. It takes disagreement, you know, well-handled disagreement and conflict to drag all that information and knowledge and insight out of every individual around that table and create something bigger than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I really think that it's disagreement that unlocks the benefits of diversity. 
So if in some senses you were in the book kind of questioning my liberal smugness that I'm the kind of person who transcends the need for conflict and you really got Not that message. Not you personally, through, I should say. Well, well, no, you know, I felt the book was written for me. <laughs> but in a way, another way, I think you reassert one important kind of liberal idea, which is you need to judge people's arguments on their merits. You need to believe that when people say something to you, it means something to them. And and I think that's important because on the one hand, of course, that strikes against prejudice, you know, racism, bigotry, sexism, which would lead us to discount somebody's views because of the fact that they are different to us or because they are a group to whom we feel superiority. But equally, I think you would want to be questioning, you don't say this explicitly in the book, but of the kind of critical theory perspective that we sometimes see on the kind of left, which says the only reason you're saying that is because you are part of an oppressive group. Or in a sense, I don't need to take your point of view seriously because you are part of an oppressive group. I think you want to say to us, in whatever the circumstances, and you talk about role-playing with somebody who's pretending to be a murderer at one point in the book, whatever the circumstances, you have to accept that on some level what is being said to you has some validity, yeah? Yes, you certainly have to go in with that perspective and see if it can be disproved, if you like. At some point, you might want to say, well, this person is just arguing in bad faith. But there's a lot you can do to find out if if they are or not before you get to that stage. Yeah, and certainly from the kind of identity point of view, what we're trying to do in a good disagreement, or what's in, one of the important things, is to separate the point of view, the position, from the person taking it. Not completely but you have to accept or understand that they are slightly different things. That starts with yourself, right? You have to accept that when somebody disagrees with what you're saying, it's not necessarily an attack on you. Because that's our instinct, right? It sort of triggers some some ancient part of our brain where we kind of think, well, they're disagreeing with me, therefore they must be attacking me. And we've got to kind of overcome that natural and sort of inevitable response in ourselves. And we've also got to make sure that we're not conveying that that sense to, to the other person. Because one of the main reasons disagreements go wrong is that they become essentially a power struggle, a dominance struggle. And we, instead of trying to focus on what the thing that we are actually meant to be talking about, we are really focused on defending ourselves and the other person becomes defend you know focused on defending their selves and it becomes a kind of a subtle or not so subtle struggle for dominance at which point you can forget the kind of the content of the disagreement because it's not going to go anywhere it's really just the kind of facade for what's going on underneath so a lot of kind of the advice i give in the book is how do you stop that happening start with yourself but also think how can i lower the other person's defenses how can i put them at ease in some way and make sure that i'm signaling that i am interested in them and that i'm listening to them as individuals not just as representatives of some sort of wider group yeah because as the book moves forward it becomes a bit of a kind of manual for how it is you get this right and in a second i want to i want to explore a couple of your rules for productive argument but before i do that the methodology of the book and one of the reasons that, you know i like the book was you know you you traveled around you talked to a lot of people and you even as i say have an exercise in which you role play a police officer interviewing somebody who's an actor pretending to be the accused as it were who adopts various roles and you discover through this your own 
limitations. I couldn't help noticing something, Ian, though. Can I share this with you? In this role, you have to be Detective Inspector Ian Leslie. Now, you say that once, Detective Inspector Ian Leslie, and then I notice a few pages later where you don't really need to say it again. You again use the phrase Detective Inspector Ian Leslie, and I couldn't help seeing there's something about the words Detective Inspector Ian Leslie that you quite like. Yeah, maybe. But, but also, <laughs> I, I wanted to draw, draw attention to the effect that that title, you know, assuming that position has on you. You know, going back to this thing about trying to stop it from turning into a power struggle, one of the reasons it goes badly is that you, you know, or me in that situation, you become very conscious of your own status. And in that situation, you know, I'm the detective inspector here, right? So I can feel like I need to assert my authority in this conversation, this interrogation situation. And that can backfire badly because when you are, you know, trying to assert your authority and and look dominant in, in the conversation, that makes the other person want to kick back. And so the really good interrogators, really good police interrogators are able to put their pride or their ego aside and just show that they're actually kind of talking on a level with this person. It probably was because I love you know, being Detective Inspector Leslie, but it also it was a kind of really interesting experiment. I'll always, when I look at you now, just have this kind of slight image of D.I. Leslie on the case. <laughs> now, let's choose a couple of these rules to look at, fascinating as they were. Let's, let's start with let go of the rope. Tell us what you mean by let go of the rope as a rule for getting conflict right. Yeah, so that phrase actually came from the expert who set up that Role play interview, a guy called Lawrence Allison, who's an academic. He's probably one of the world's foremost experts on interrogation, on effective, effective interrogation. And he advises and, and trains the police and the counter terrorist police on it and has huge amount of experience and insight on it. And one of the things he said is that, well, it's really going back to what I've just been saying, which is that these tense conversations, these tense arguments have a habit of turning into these little power struggles. And my advice is, you know, when you feel like you're in a tug of war, when you're getting into a tug of war with a suspect, just let go of the rope. And what he means is stop trying to persuade them of what they ought to be doing or what they ought to be saying. So really good interrogators do not walk into the room and start saying, okay, listen, you need to tell me what you know, or, you know, whatever, we're going to throw the book at you. They know that is actually the most counterproductive thing you can do. It raises the suspect's defences, just makes them kind of dig in. It's almost like an easy win for them because they're like, this is what I expected. Okay, well, I'm just going to sit here and say nothing or I'm going to be disruptive or whatever. The really skillful interrogators and the ones who are most effective, according to the studies, are more likely to just go in there and say things like, you know, they'll open with something like, look, I would just really like to understand how you got here. I'm interested in what happened to you. Just tell me your story. And these hardened terrorists who've been trained for exactly this situation just open up and sort of gush out their story. And, and along with their story comes a lot of good information. And it's because the, you know, I'm simplifying, but that's the model that works best. And it's because these the really good interrogators know that once something becomes a power struggle, you're not going to get information because you're not going to have a rich conversation. 
And so the suspect might try and turn it into a power struggle at some point by being disruptive or saying something horrible or just sort of arguing. And you should not engage with that. Let go of the rope. Just avoid it. Move on. Move on to another subject. Don't let it become a status battle. And so, yeah, I mean, not all of us are going to do interrogations, but just the striking thing about these conversations I had with people like this was you can apply those same insights to all sorts of arguments and and conversations. There are some times when, you know, you're just stuck in a futile tug of war and it's up to you to kind of, you know, unilaterally disarm and see if you can take the conversation in a different direction. Another one of the rules is check your weirdness. And you talk in that chapter quite a lot about the kind of catastrophic Waco siege, which occurs at other points as well, because it's almost a case study in failed conflict resolution. So tell us a bit about this kind of notion of checking your weirdness, but but also particularly in reference to the way in which the FBI was incapable of appreciating where the Branch Davidians were really coming from before the catastrophic assault on the Waco compound. Yeah, exactly. So in this situation... You had the Branch Davidians, right, which was a very kind of, you know, just definitely a very kind of eccentric and in some ways quite unpleasant cult in this compound. But they were absolutely sincerely committed to their beliefs. And then you had the FBI who were negotiating with them from a a nearby bunker on the phone, trying to get an agreement so that we could get, you know, get everyone out alive. And as most people will know, after a long negotiation taking months, it ended in disaster with most of the Davidians being killed. So yeah, one of the reasons, one of the maybe the fundamental reason it went wrong was that the FBI were, it was a sort of failure of empathy. The FBI could not quite believe that the Branch Davidians really believed what they meant when they talked about these things in kind of apocalyptic terms. And they kept assuming that actually, if we are just reasoned and analytical, and we kind of talk to them in this kind of reasonable analytical way, this goes back to what we were saying earlier, then these guys must come round to us. And if they don't, it's because they're acting in bad faith and they're lying or they're stupid, whatever it is. And you look at the transcripts, because we have all the transcripts of these conversations, and they're just like, they're just talking past each other all the time. You know, they're just not meeting in the middle, just in terms of the way they talk and the tone with which they talk. It's almost like two different languages going on. And there were some moves within the FBI to correct for this. And, you know, they've got a couple of biblical scholars in and they managed to kind of have conversations with the Davidians on their level about how to see this through a biblical lens and how it meant kind of getting everyone out alive. And that made some progress. But in the end, it was just sort of too little, too late. So look, I just thought it was a very dramatic and sort of telling example of how we can assume that we're the kind of normal, reasonable, you know, analytical guys in the room here. And the people that we're talking to, if they don't respond to that, that must be because they're either stupid or evil or something else wrong with them. And we kind of lose patience with it. And you see that in all sorts of political conversations. You know, it did remind me a little bit of some of the discourse around Brexit, where you had a lot of educated people saying, well, you know, here are the facts. Here's the kind of reasoned arguments. And if these people don't understand it, well, there's something wrong with them. They're just being stupid or recalcitrant or whatever it is. And not really kind of making the effort to get into the mindset of the other side. 
Yeah, I thought one idea that kind of popped into my head when I was reading this, almost like an astronomical kind of reference, which is that there's a tendency in these situations when you've got an authority, the FBI or a professional or, or somebody who just thinks that they're kind of better educated, more rational, more reasoned, that it's almost as if they can think, well, I am a fixed planet and this weirdness is revolving around me or even the other way around, which is the weirdness is the fixed planet and I'm revolving around it. But actually what you're saying over again is no... You are planets revolving around it. You are in a dynamic interaction. That If you want to make the conflict work, don't see one of you as being different from the other. You are both setting each other off. And indeed, as you say more towards the end of the book, managing to control your own emotions, the way in which the interaction is setting you off is one of the important things to be a skilled conflict resolver. Yeah, exactly. You put it better than I just did. But yeah, that's it. We have this kind of you know, added layer as kind of Western analytical, rational people, we kind of assume that we are the normal ones and everybody else is abnormal, as as you say. And I was drawing on the ideas of the anthropologist Joe Heinrich, who who kind of points out that people who think in this way, in this kind of Western analytical way, are actually in the minority around the world and often within their own countries, right? And so, you know, we are actually the weird ones and we should take account of that, you know, and see this as a cross-cultural conversation and see if we can overcome that. Instead, what we do is say, well, we're normal. These other guys have this kind of strange or, or sort of irrational way of thinking. Oh, gosh, you know, we may as well just give up. So, yeah, and as you say, that's also related to kind of you know, seeing yourself from the outside, seeing yourself as others might see you, and almost kind of stepping outside yourself and saying, well, how am I doing that? How am I managing this conversation? Is there anything I can do better to bring the other person around to me? That's something that we, we don't do enough in an argument. So there's a fascinating moment in the book. You know, you've gone through your analysis very powerfully. You've gone through these rules, and the kind of implication there is that like any kind of process of learning about, we can learn the rules and, and we can get better at this. And then there's this burly, aggressive Welsh police officer who walks into a room with somebody who's been using these skills and not making a great deal of progress with a young person who is suicidal and desperate. He breaks every single rule in the book. He just basically says, oh, pull yourself together, you idiot. You know, I'm not going to sort out your problems. If you're going to go to hospital, go to hospital or shut up kind of thing. And it works. And there's this moment in the book where you kind of go, hmm, yeah, maybe even with all the rules and everything and doing the best you can, there just are some people who have this secret source. They kind of have a capacity to connect with people and they don't need to use any rules at all. They're just kind of present in a way where maybe people like me and you, Ian, we can read all the rules in the world, but we're just too self-regarding. We just wouldn't ever be capable of that kind of capacity for connection. Yeah. I mean, I love that story because it sort of undermines everything else in the book, which I welcome. And, you know, because human relationships, human communication are incredibly complex. So I think these rules that I write about are, well, I wouldn't have written them otherwise, but I think they're incredibly useful, right? They're good kind of guides to how to make a disagreement go well. But they're not infallible because every conversation is different. And more importantly, if they just become a series of little tricks or techniques that you just kind of throw in and you kind of exercise on other people, then, you know, the other people will notice that. So the 10th rule and the kind of golden rule in the book is be real, right? This is, has to be ultimately about honesty and, and authenticity. When those interrogators, for instance, th th those expert interrogators, when they say, 
tell me about your life. I'm interested. They mean it. They are genuinely curious guys. They really want to understand the people that they're talking to. If they just say it because they've read it in a book or on a training course, it's not going to go well. And so honesty is the kind of the er rule. And yeah, that's really what that Welsh policeman was was practicing. He wasn't trying to apply some sort of sophisticated, you know, management of the person he was talking to. He was just somebody who was brilliantly kind of honest and authentic and direct. He was very tough on the guy, but there was a certain warmth behind it as well. And so, you know, he could break all those rules, but because he practiced the 10th one so well, which was like he was undeniably kind of real and honest, that kind of trumped everything. Yeah, and I think that's really important because maybe there is a another rule, which is know who you are and recognize that maybe there are some situations where you just don't have the toolkit. This is a kind of issue for me with my wife because she, you know, we work from home and she works for an ethical leadership consultancy and she spends an enormous amount of the time every day emoting with people, you know, really connecting with them and giving them enormously positive feedback and being clearly delighted and and I find myself getting disorientated by this because I don't really emote like this at all. And so I, I'm always trying to convince her that she's the abnormal one because of her capacity to connect with almost anybody, whereas I'm the normal one with my capacity to very rarely do that. I mean, we are different, aren't we, Ian? We are different in our capacity to be real. Um, I don't know, actually. Are we different in our capacity to be real? No, I'm not sure that we are. What I would say is that the injunction to just be yourself is trickier than it sounds. And often what people mean is, you know, do an impression of yourself, pretend to be real. But I think that the point is you can't just sort of read a list of tips and then just sort of repeat them mindlessly. Like, you know, you've been on an HR training course or whatever. Whether it's from my book or another book, you can use these principles, these kind of in inverted commas, rules of good conversation or good disagreement as guides. But at the same time, you've got to follow your own intuition. It should really kind of make you more self-aware. I guess that's what it comes down to. It can't tell you what to say, but it can it can show you where you're making mistakes and how to avoid them and open up some opportunities for you to make the conversation go better. Yeah, I hope that's right. I think basically my self-belief was, was shattered because this ongoing argument with my wife about who is the more kind of normal, whether, I mean, in as much as one should use that kind of term about our kind of connection. In the end, she won the argument. We would watch television programs about suffering and my wife would get upset. She would sometimes cry at these programs and I, I wouldn't feel anything at all. And then we went to see a play with Carrie Mulligan where she played a character, it's a one-woman show where she played the character of a woman whose husband had, had killed their children and turned on a terrible but at the beginning of the second act of this play at the royal court she turns to the audience or she's speaking to the audience and she says to them you know the second half of what i'm going to tell you is already difficult but just remember uh, it's not happening now and it didn't happen to you and so i was very pleased with this and a few days later we were having dinner with some friends and i said i really said i think this point that the playwright makes is that when when you i turn to my when you get upset when you watch a, a, a film about i don't know child slaves or whatever and you get upset and I don't the point is you should remember that you're not there and it's not happening to you you should give yourself that distance I was very very pleased to myself 
And then she pointed out that I had burst into tears watching Paddington 2, <laughs> at which point my credibility completely fell apart. So I'd like to believe that if I follow your rules, Ian, I can get real. and get. But I, I wonder whether I'm wrongly wired in some ways. Well, I, no, I, I don't think that's, that's obviously not true. What's interesting here, I think, is that I think you have a good marriage because you are different from each other. You know, the, the, the principle of there are benefits to diversity applies to a marriage and applies to emotional attitudes to the world as much as it does to anything else. There's a really interesting study from relationship science that I mention in the book that says that couples that that have a tough time and that you know tend to be unhappy are often ones where they are both quite sort of highly emotional and sort of responsive to each other and they kind of set each other off into these kind of escalating loops of of anxiety or fear or anger and that couples or groups that tend to get along better include at least you know one person who's almost a little bit insensitive, you know, and, and is able to kind of, you know, slow down some of these loops. In the book, I talk about rock groups quite a lot. And I, I sort of say this is the, you know, the Ringo principle where you have kind of three very headstrong individuals and you have one kind of very steady, straight guy. And the same sort of applies to marriages and to families. You know, you need a mix of different temperaments for this to go well. Yeah, it's interesting. We got the inevitable lockdown puppy. And what I've noticed about having the dog is she hasn't been nearly as good on the companionship as I thought. I thought having a dog would have, you know, I'd have a really close friend that would kind of make me feel less alone. Well, that hasn't really happened at all. The thing that the dog has done, though, is it's quite good having somebody in the house who doesn't give a toss. That is quite centering. Yeah, I mean, I found the same with my children, who are, I think, yeah, <laughs> are younger than yours. Or, so, so they're kind of six and eight. They know that the coronavirus is around, it's a bit weird, and, and it's a bit annoying. But fundamentally, they don't give a toss. And <laughs> that is, you know, it's quite a good stabiliser emotionally. I want to end with perhaps my hero from the book, even more than your big burly Welsh police officer. And that's another police officer, a guy called Jonathan Wender. And the reason I was intrigued by him is that, you know, he's got a PhD, he's a philosopher, he's a phenomenologist, and he's a police officer. And it just made me think, one of the problems about the stratification of our labor market is that, you know, if you've got a philosophy degree or a psychology degree or a physics degree or a theology degree or whatever, you're unlikely to want to be a police officer or a social carer or whatever. But actually, what an amazing thing it was. He's a fantastic character because he's doing this really important job as a police officer, but he brings to it this, this wonderful imagination, this wonderful toolkit he gets from the fact that he's a, a philosopher too. We need more philosophers in the front line, don't we, Ian? I totally agree. He is wonderful and he's very eloquent on, on the subject of policing. And he says, look, you know, if you're a philosopher and a thinker, you're interested in the, the big questions in life. And look, as a policeman, I see people, you know, experiencing really intense, important moments, often really quite unpleasant ones, but not always. You know, I see people on the verge of suicide. I see people experiencing broken homes. So I'm constantly questioning just in my day-to-day -day work what it is to be alive, what it is to live a good life. And so he finds the work you know, 
sort of satisfying, morally satisfying, and also intellectually stimulating at the same time. And yeah, I agree. Just because you have a fancy degree doesn't mean you should go and just be an academic or, or you know, work in a think tank. You can really kind of get a lot of rich information and insight from very kind of hands-on, more everyday jobs. Last question, Ian. You've done curiosity. You've done conflict. What's next? And will it begin with C? Do you know, I don't know. And I'm open to suggestions. I'm interested in collaboration and creativity and how it is that groups of people come together and create something bigger than, you know, the sum of the parts. So it might be down that route, but I'm still thinking about it. Well, I encourage everyone to get hold of Conflicted. I think it was, you know, it's a great book. And, it, you know, one of those books that changes your view of the world. And even if I'm somewhat skeptical of my capacity to ever be able to demonstrate real empathy, I'll have a bit of a go at it now by applying your rules. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, please, please rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. 